Um, I've been writing uh, a book for actually about eight months. Um, the, the working title is God's Most Beautiful Creation. And, you know, when you write a book and you, you're doing it for a publisher, you don't, you, you, you don't get the final decision on the, on the title. Do you guys like the title, Women Unshackled? Or you like God's most beautiful creation? Like both? Yeah. Like number two, yeah, I don't know, whatever. But anyway, so I've been working on it for eight months, and it's due January 3rd. And, and I, I was the kid in high school, in school, all through school, that I didn't do my homework till, well, sometimes never, actually. <laughs> Sorry, the Lord convicted me. I'm like, ah, for lied in first service. But when I did my homework, it was usually like the day before. They could give me three months to do a project, and the day before I'd be like, oh, oh my projects do. And how many of you were like that? And so I did the same thing with this book. Like, I have eight months to write it, and, and then about a month ago, I'm like, oh, my projects do. <laughs> so I've literally been writing like 10 to 12 hours a day for two solid weeks. I've been... I, uh, I took off two weeks. Actually, I was here five times teaching, but in between teaching, I was writing like day and night. Finished most nights at a midnight. So anyway, um, so all I'm thinking about is I'm writing a book on empowering women. And I, I'm just a little OCD, so, I, like, so day and night I'm thinking about women. <laughs> I'm obviously in a proper way, but I'm thinking about the scriptures, and I, I spent, um, I'm, the chapter I'm writing right now that I just finished yesterday, yes, 10,000 words, which that's, you know, that's one-sixth of the book, is about um, Jesus, and how many know that Jesus was the founder of the women's liberation movement? I'm not talking about the American one, I'm talking about the Jesus one. Jesus was the founder of the women's liberation movement. And so, um, and well, I'm going to talk about that in a minute. Um, I actually started a series, uh, t- taught a series, God's Most Beautiful Creation, that's, I think, four or five sessions I did in big church. Do you call that big church? I, d- I don't mean it to be unoffensive. I mean, to be unoffensive. I actually want to offend you. So it, if you don't call it big church, when whatever offends you, that's what I'd like to call it. More anointed church. Uh, <laughs> sorry. You know, I'm being funny. Um, but anyway, I did a series over there um, called God's, God's Most Beautiful Creation, but it actually didn't include this, uh, it didn't include this teaching on, on Jesus because I, I didn't actually know a lot about how Jesus treated women. I mean, I read the Gospels, but I didn't study it. So, I, so the last two weeks I've been reading, um, I've been writing about Jesus and his counterculture you know, Jesus was a counterculture radical, you know? A lot of us, like, we picture Jesus like this mild-mannered kind of, like, guy walking around, you know, whispering kind of real gently, you know, powerful things and kissing, you know, the foreheads of children. And, you know, we've, we've kind of domesticated the line of the tribe of Judah, you know? He's become a house cat, and we've... We've put him in this religious uh, box, and we, you know, he's he's not very dangerous where we have him, and we don't we haven't really realized that Jesus was a counterculture radical, and uh, it, they didn't kill him because he was, a, you know, just this nice man 
kind of like, you know, doing, you know, you know, he what? I know that's kind of like the Buddhist idea of God, but it's not, it's not the Bible's idea of God at all. And so, um, but, but for the sake of um, those who, who missed um, the series that I did, I, I just want to pick up just a couple of scriptures to give you some foundation. And if you're interested at all, you can get this off of uh, iBethel, uh, in the iBethel store. I think, I, think it's, I think there's even a couple of the sessions that are free on my website. Anyway, why don't you turn to Genesis chapter 1, and I just want to, I want to show you the foundation of womanhood and, you know, and manhood, male and female, personhood. You know, whenever we're talking about a subject, it's really important for us to understand what the author intended, what the creator meant. And, you know, it's, it's even, you know, it, you buy a vehicle. I know this is a silly illustration, but you buy a vehicle, and, you know, if you buy a little, a little Mini Cooper, you know, you, you, don't, you, don't, you, you don't buy that with the intention of pulling a huge, you know, you know six-wheel trailer. You know, in other words, you kind of have an idea, like, what did the manufacturer intend? Are you with me? And so, um, and that can be, you know, that can get, it can get, uh, perverted or transformed or added to, you know, you can buy a house and, you know, if, how many of you know, if the builder built the house with one level, you know, thinking the house is going to be one level and you want to make it a five-story house, how many of you know you're going to have to jack up the foundation and do some work to the foundation because the intention was different than, than the use? Are you following me? I, I know that's not very well articulated, but my point is, is that Whenever you see a subject in the Bible, it's really, they, they call it the principle of first mention. It's really important to go back to the original idea. Okay, this was the original idea. This, is, this was what the author had in mind. Or in this case, because we're talking about creation and the creator specifically, what did the creator have in mind when he created man, male, when he created woman, female? What did he have in mind? What was his original intention? Now we can... We can debate about what's happened since then, and there's maybe lots of ideas as we talk about women, as we talk about men, and as we talk about the roles of men and women, which we won't, we won't do too much today, but when we get, you know, we can, we can debate how cultures affected that, how um, the evolutionary process, and I'm not talking about evolution in the, in the bad sense of, you know, I, I, you know, we're not from apes, not that, but I mean the evolutionary process of society and how roles have morphed and changed to to, um, you know, to promote society in, in different ways. We can, we can debate those things and we can look into those things, but the, we have to go back to what was the original intention? When the creator created us, what did he intend? What was he thinking when he created us? And so I just want to pick up Genesis' story and then we're going to look at how Jesus t- uh, treated women, okay? So this is a big jump. It's like we're starting at the beginning of the movie, then we're going to fast forward to the you know, the last 30 minutes of the movie, so to speak. And, but I, I want you to kind of get a feel for how it all started. And so Genesis chapter 1, these will be very familiar verses for you. Um, we'll start from verse 24. Then God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures after their kind. Would you say after their kind every time I point to you, please? And God said, let, I'm um, sorry, God said, let the earth bring forth creatures after their kind. 
cattle, creeping things, and beasts of the earth after their kind. And God made the beasts of the field after their kind. The cattle and the cattle after their kind. And every creeping thing that creeps on the, on the ground after its kind. And God saw that it was good. Verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the sky, over the cattle, and over uh, all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And God created man in his image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. I want to just take this passage and maybe spend just four or five minutes on it, and then we're going to launch into a completely different place. We're going to go to the Gospels. But I want you to notice that God says eight times after their kind, the cattle after their kind, the beasts after their kind, the, the creeping things after their kind, after their kind. And so he goes after their kind, 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 and God created man in his image after their kind. You were created after the kind of God. You were created in his likeness and in his image. I, the, point, the author is, the, Moses is writing this in, a, in that you'll have the sense that everything was made after its kind, and it's not by accident that he says after its kind eight times before he says, let us make man in our image. The connotation is, let us make man after our kind. And that's why you are called sons and daughters of God. And that's why Ephesians 5.1 says, be imitators of God. When you're imitating God, you're being yourself because you were made after his kind. You were made after the God kind. And the, the deal is this, is that, and he said, let us make him both male and female. He made them. And then he said, he said, be fruitful and multiply and subdue the earth. Now, important thing here. This is divine design, original creation. He made us first after their kind. So first of all, we were after his kind. Secondly, he made he made us in his image, and his image, male and female. As soon as you take female out of the equation, you only have one-dimensional God. God is not man. God is male and female. Are you with me? You cannot represent God with only male. God is, God is not just a male. God is represented through male and female. He created female to represent the other side of him. God has a feminine side. It is true. He didn't create men in his image and, and women not in his image. He created them in his image. The female part of God, how many understand, was in man. This is another teaching completely. But where did God find the woman? In Genesis 2, you'll notice that when God creates a woman, where did he find the woman? He took her out of the man. She was in the man. He took her out of the man. It's the side effects of manhood. How many of you know that, <laughs> that woman and man are in God, not just man? I don't know if you're understanding what I'm saying. And so, and so you, you cannot, if you reduce women, you have reduced your revelation of God. Because God is revealed not in men. He's revealed in both sexes. And he told both sexes, male and female, equally co-reigners, subdue the earth. It was only after the fall, and this is, again, another part of the teaching I did before. I spent three weeks on it. But it was only after the fall in Genesis 3 that the curse over the woman 
And there was a curse over the serpent, the woman, and the man. But for the sake of our teaching today, the curse over the woman was you will have pain in childbirth and your husband will rule over you. He never ruled over them before the curse. You'll notice, in fact, that she had influence over him. She's the one that convinced him to eat the fruit. She was telling him what to do. The serpent didn't go to Adam. He went to the person in charge. Yeah? You don't think so? Who was Adam listening to? The woman. And so, you know, this is not a commentary on, I'm saying, it's a commentary on the fact she was powerful. She was made to be powerful. That was divine design. Before the fall, she was made to be powerful. And so, you know, when we reduce her, we reduce the image of God because God's image is both male and female. And so now we're going to fast forward. Um, I want to tell you, I want to set this, the stage for the ministry of Jesus. I want to read you, this is just a, a, a couple of paragraphs out of the book that I, I'm writing right now. But I want to set the stage for first century Judaism. Judaism. And I want you to, uh, well, you'll, I'll just read it to you, it's faster. In first century Israel, there was no people group more oppressed than women. They were considered second-class citizens akin to slaves. They had virtually no rights, no respect, and no voice. They were the property of men. They were allowed little or no formal education. If a family had young boys and girls, the boys would go off to school to be educated while the girls stayed home with their mother. Like the women of Afghanistan before the American invasion, Jewish women were forbidden to speak to men in public and were required to veil their faces whenever they left their homes. If a woman was caught unveiled in public, it was grounds for divorce. They, were, they kept house, took care of their children, and served at the will of their husbands. If a man came over the house for dinner, the woman had to eat in another room. Their fathers arranged most of their marriages, so they rarely married the man of their dreams. The best they could hope for is someone who treated them better than their fathers. To make matters worse, um, polygamy was legal for men, not for women. So most women shared their husbands with other wives. If their husband got tired of them for, for most any reason, they divorced them and discarded them like used rags. Jewish women could not vote. In fact, they had no political influence whatsoever. A woman couldn't even be a witness in a court case. Judaism was stricter than the Old Testament law with respect to women. Women were relegated to the outer court of the synagogue. They were most often not allowed to read the scriptures, the Torah. One first century rabbi's name, El, uh, name Elzel, Elzer said, Rather should the words of the Torah be burned than entrusted to a woman. Whoever teaches his daughter the Torah is like one who teaches her sexual immorality. His comments depicted the, relig his comments depicted the religious community's attitude towards women of the time. In fact, women were not allowed to recite the sherem or the morning prayer, nor, nor pray at, at meals. So, and there's tons more, but there's just a little piece of it. I want you to get an idea. When Jesus ministered, when he walked the earth in, in the first century, this, this was the way that, that people thought of women. They were second-class citizens. They were, they were akin to slaves. They were very much, if you will, I mean this in no disrespect, but they were thought of as the, as, as the white man thought of black people, Negroes, if you will, before the civil rights movement. 
when, when they had separate bathrooms, separate drinking fountains, and you know, they rode in the back of the bus, and they weren't educated in the same schools, and they were considered not intelligent enough to really learn like a white person, and so on and so forth. They were, they were the possession of people, of men. And that is the culture that, that Jesus entered into. And the people perpetuating that culture, the people who were teaching that culture, were the religious community, the scribes and the Pharisees in particular. Now, just a little interesting side note, which I did not know until two weeks ago. I've been spending hours and hours and hours studying the history of the first century so I'd have a, an understanding of what's really happening in the Gospels. What I didn't understand is that the, in Greek culture, women were powerful. As a matter of fact, um, in, in Ephesus, and every, every, every city that had a Greek deity that was a woman, in, in those cities, women were powerful. So you'll notice, like when you're reading the book of Acts, you'll notice that, Jesus, that, I'm sorry, that Paul meets a woman named Lydia, who is the seller of purple garments, and, said, and it says she was a leading lady in the city. Why? Because she was in a city that their deity, their God, was a woman. In Ephesus, where Timothy taught, it, when Paul writes to Timothy, he's writing to Timothy, who's the pastor or apostle, of you, if you will, of the church of Ephesus. You know the book of Ephesus? And who is the goddess of Ephesus? It's goddess, the goddess Diana. Remember the book of Acts. And what I'm getting at is this. That's the reason why Paul writes to Timothy and says, I don't allow a woman to teach or exercise authority. It was contextual. Women in those cultures were the ones who were leading the, the religious demonic rituals. They were in charge of cities. They were leading women in cities. They were, they were matriarchal cultures. I'm not saying that because of that they were, they were bad. I'm just saying they were leading in the, in the cultic culture. Are you following me? And so in, in, Greek, in Greece, they would name their cities after women. Thessalonica, the book of Thessalonians, the, the city that that book was written to, was the, that's the name of a woman. And so they were proud of their women. They empowered their women. Their women didn't just vote. They led cities. They, they had this equal rights with men. In some cases, they were more valued than men. And that was going on at the same time as Judaism was happening in the first century. But so when you went from Greece, if you will, into Jerusalem, or in this case Rome, where the, the Romans were ruling Jerusalem actually at the time, the, the, there was a distinct, a very, it was very different. It was, it was like an American going to Afghanistan pre-American invasion, where, where women covered their head, if you understand the difference. So Jesus isn't ministering in America, so to speak, 21st century. He's ministering in pre War invasion in Afghanistan. Are you following me? So they didn't, and, and as I, I read to you earlier, they didn't allow women to, to uncover their heads, speak in public, speak to men in public, and so on and so forth. So turn to Luke chapter 10. There's, well, let me just read you the story. You'll know the story well. There's five people in the Bible. I've said four in the first service, and somebody came up and found a fifth. Thank Jesus for corrections. There's five people in the Bible that the Bible specifically says and that Jesus loved. I mean, Jesus loves everybody. Jesus loves you. He loves me a little bit more than you, but not a lot. <laughs> you understand, I'm simply saying 
there's five people that the Bible specifically says, and Jesus loved. It's interesting that, first of all, one of them is John, and John's the only one who said that about himself. In the Gospel of John, he says, and the, and the disciple whom Jesus loved. But the other three Gospels do not agree with that. They never called John the disciple whom Jesus loved. In fact, they never even call him John the Beloved. So, so that leaves actually four that we know for sure that Jesus said. And two of them were women. And we're going to read about them in just a second here. Verse 38. And as they were traveling, speaking of Jesus along, he entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. And she had a sister named Mary who was seated at the Lord's feet listening to his word. But Martha was distracted with all of her preparations, and she, and she came up and said to Jesus, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the serving alone? Then tell her to help me. And the Lord answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, you're so worried and bothered about so many things, but only one thing is necessary. For Mary has chosen the good part, which shall not be taken away from her. Martha, I have a high value for laziness, and I really don't like that you're a workaholic. And I have no value for hospitality, so leave Mary alone. That's about how we teach that. But Jesus isn't saying to Martha, Martha, I have no value for hospitality. And listen, Mar Mary's doing the better thing. She's, she's being lazy here and, and hanging out. That's what I like, Martha. You, you, you're just a you know, workaholic, a personality, and you're just always busy, 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 and you, know, and you think you're going to earn something from me, but you're not. I mean, that's how we teach that. And I've heard it taught over and over that, you know, Mary's, you know, worshiping and, and Martha's kind of like the Pharisee and she's kind of like wants to work for uh, everything. But actually, that's not the story at all. That's not the story at all. What's actually happening is Jesus, in the backdrop of Judaism that I just told you about, he's saying to Martha, Martha, you're playing the role that the Jewish religious people have put on you. I don't have a problem with the role. He's not saying, Martha, listen, we're not going to eat. Listen, I don't care about eating. Uh, hey, Martha, I don't care about hospitality. He's saying, Martha, come and sit with Mary. I want to teach you. Listen, men don't teach women. Are you, are you getting this? Women aren't allowed to stay in, this, in the presence of men. When, when, when men eat, women have to go in another room. He's saying to, to Martha, Martha, Mary's chose the better thing. He's not saying she's chose the lazy thing. He's saying Mary has chose to break the, break the mindset of Judaism and come and learn from me. I have some things to teach you. I have some things I, I want you to impart to you. Martha, it's okay. Listen, we'll eat later. That's good what you're doing. It's okay for you to come and sit with Mary. You don't have to feel guilty about sitting with Mary. There's a new standard I want to bring to womanhood. That's what he's saying. In John chapter 11, we, I, I love, I, I just went through, and you know, you can do it real easy now with Bible programs, right? Computerized Bible programs. I just 
called up Martha and I read her. I read every place that talked about Martha in the context. You know, the post-text, the pretext, and the context about Martha. And I did the same thing with Mary. And of course, there's lots of Marys in the Bible. <laughs> it's confusing. There's so many Marys. And, um, and this, is, this is such an interesting it's such an interesting study just studying the life of Martha. And here, in John chapter 11, verse 1. Now, uh, now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and his sister Martha. What was the village? Who was sick? Lazarus. But the village was what? From Jesus' perspective, who had the most influence in the village? Mary and Martha. Are you understanding this? Are you getting this? In the backdrop of Judaism, he says, in the village of Martha and Mary. And he says, it was Mary who anointed the Lord with anointment, <clears throat> with ointment, and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. So the sisters sent word to him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. But when Jesus heard this, he said, this sickness is not to, to end in death, but for the glory of God, so the Son of Man may be glorified. Now Jesus, listen to this, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Did you get that? So Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. See, see it's so hard. Like, you, you don't know what's going on behind the curtain here. I mean, I've read that for, you know, 38 years I've been a Christian. I've read that, and this last two weeks, it means something totally different to me. I understand that when he says, and Jesus loved Mary and Martha, of course, Jesus loved the world. The gospel writers are writing against, they're writing counterculture stuff. They're saying, listen, you don't understand. Jesus loved Martha and Mary. It would be like me, can you imagine if I was uh, pre, do you understand the, the uh, um, Emancipation Proclamation that Abraham Lincoln, you know, the Civil War, all of that, you, you understand it. Yeah, it's awesome, but do you realize that that African Americans, Negroes, uh, that they call them at the time, they actually didn't get free. I mean, they, they got legally free, but what were they going to do? I mean, most of them became bond servants. Most of them went back and worked for their same masters. I'm not saying they had to, but they just did. And then, then people, white people didn't immediately change. My, white people didn't like, oh, okay, you're free. Uh, go free. You understand, it's when, when Martin Luther King, what Martin Luther King gave to people is what they'd already won in a civil war. He didn't give them anything different. He just, they, they were fighting for what was already law to be enforced. Are you following me? So do you understand that's 100 plus years that people fought for something. It was 100 years later before people would actually begin to be thought of as anything close to an equal. So can you imagine in 1950, before the Civil Rights Movement, can you imagine if, if I wrote a letter to you and I said, hey, John and Henry and I went to the movies with two of our Negro friends. You would be like, listen, you wouldn't even be thinking what the movie was about. <laughs> you, you, you're, not, you're not flowing with me, I don't think. You would be like, you have Negroes with you? You're a white person? You have black people with you? You'd be like, wait, wait, right, right back. Tell me about that. If I said, man, I go to a great church in 1950, 
I go to this great church, man. It's so amazing. And that black preacher, he can really preach. You'd be like, you don't care about the message. The message is you mentioned the black preacher. Counterculture. Radical new idea. A white person goes to a black church. Are you following me? Jesus loved Mary and Martha. The, the gospel writers are mentioning women. It's in your face. It's on purpose. I used to hate the fact that the gospel writers would say, and Jesus, and, and he fed the 5,000 men plus women and children. I hated that. It, it, it bothered me that, that the women weren't counted. And now I understand completely opposite perspective after two weeks of studying. No, no, the gospel writers wanted you to know that Jesus was teaching women and children. That when Jesus taught, he wasn't just teaching 5,000 men. The emphasis on he taught, he fed 5,000 men. Plus, and the key is, plus, the Negroes went with us to the movies. I mean that in all respect. Of course you know me. You understand, the emphasis on, and women and children. Because the Pharisees would not teach women. They wouldn't even look a woman in the face. And it says, and Jesus loved Martha and Mary. And Lazarus. And, oh, and Lazarus. And Lazarus is, you know that he loves Lazarus. But what you don't know is he loves Martha and Mary. And so, you know the story. He finds out that Lazarus is sick. Jesus finds out Lazarus is sick. And what does he do? He delays. He makes sure he's dead. Okay? That's just... This is the way... This is like the message Bible on steroids. It's the truth. He may, Listen, when he finds out he's sick, he says, and so because he knew he was sick and because he loved him, he waited two more days. Now, it's four days' journey. It's four days' journey. I'm sorry. It's two days' journey from where Jesus is to where Lazarus is. It takes Jesus four days to get there. Who called for him? Martha. Now, we pick up the story in, in chapter 12. Oh, no, that's not it. I didn't have the rest of the story. When Martha, when Jesus gets to the village, finally, it says that when she finds out that Jesus is on the way, Martha runs out to meet Jesus. She runs out to meet Jesus. Now, remember, she called for him four days ago. She knows it's two days' walk. He's two days late. And he, she says to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. It's an accusation. Martha is an A personality, needs justice. Hey, you're going to tell my sister to help? I'm doing all the work. This is, this is Martha all throughout the Gospels. Just pick up her story. She's the one. She's confrontive. She needs justice. She's a black and white thinker. She runs out to meet Jesus. She isn't like crying, weeping, you know, mourning. She's mad. <laughs> I called for you four days ago. Where you been? And she says to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. And then she says this, but even if you, even now, if you speak the word, my brother shall live. 
She said, this is, you're not getting it. She's saying, I, listen, I don't know why you're late, but you can fix this. You can fix this still. Okay? You should have been here two days ago. She's not weeping. She's not crying. She's mad. She's got theological issues with Jesus saying, you love me, but you're late. And Jesus says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. Do you believe that? And she says this, I believed Past tense, that. I believed that. Now, I don't think she's saying, I don't believe it anymore. I think she's saying, you taught me that. When I sat at your feet, you knew this was coming. I believed that. I know, listen, I don't, you didn't, I, I knew this previously. I believe that. And she gets hope and she goes and tells Mary. The, and she says, the teacher is here. Not the Lord, not the master, the teacher. Men don't teach women. <laughs> the most powerful revelation on the resurrection, pre-Paul, the apostle, is Jesus teaching a woman, one-on-one. -on -one. Now Mary comes. This is so typical Mary. She, she, she's back at the body. She's crying, and Martha has to go get her, of course. She brings Martha to, I'm sorry, she brings G, Mary to Jesus. Still, they're not, they're still, still outside the village. And she brings Mary. And Mary, when Mary sees him, she falls down. <laughs> She's weeping. She's got, you know, a whole bunch of people with her, you know. And she says to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Now, hers isn't, a, hers isn't an accusation. Hers isn't a, you know, you said you'd like us. You tell us about the resurrection stuff. And here we are. No, no. She's weeping. And she's not saying, you should have been here. My brother wouldn't have died. That's Martha. She's saying, if you were here, my brother wouldn't have died. She's grieving over the loss of her brother. She doesn't have a justice theological issue. And what does Jesus do? He weeps. He knows that he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. But he weeps. Why? Because he understands how to make a connection with women in their emotion. See, men don't cry. Men, men are macho. Men are, men are, the emotion is, you understand Judaism. Emotion is a woman thing. It's, it's, it's not to be valued. And Jesus weeps with her. He's saying, it's, it's a statement. It's a value statement. He doesn't need to weep. He knows he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. He could say, hey, man, cool it, you know. Mary, get off of me. I'm going to have to raise Jesus, Lazarus from the dead here. You're messing with my faith. And it says, and he wept. And it says that the people around him said, oh, how he loved him. Why? See, Martha needed a justice issue. He didn't get mad at her. He gave her revelation. Mary's not looking for revelation. Mary's looking for help.
In John 12, it's, it's, it's a few weeks later, and they're at Lazarus' house in Bethany. Now, this is so typical. So here they are. Jesus comes to Lazarus' house. And what's Martha doing in the story? It says this. So they were having supper there, and Martha was serving. This is after the first time he corrected her. No, Martha was serving. Of course Martha's serving. That's what Martha does. That's what she created to do. Martha's serving. What's Lazarus doing? Eating. <laughs> That's what Martha, he's reclining at the table eating. And what does Mary do? What do we expect Mary to do? Martha's serving. <laughs> Lazarus is eating. The disciples are complaining. And what is... <laughs> Mary doing? Do you know what Mary's doing? Of course, Mary has to blast in on the scene with all of her passion and $60,000 worth of perfume. And she starts dumping it on body and weeping. And she's so emotional. And she's, she's just passion on steroids. I mean, every time you see Mary, she's crying about something. <laughs> right? You know what I'm talking about. And, and I'm not stereotyping women. I'm saying Martha is the, you know, get it done. We got stuff to do. We got justice. There's black and white. Life is right and wrong, black and white. Things, hard work. Mary's like, that's yeah, okay, but I just love Jesus. It's not one's not more womanly than another. It's just different personalities. And the disciples, now I understand Judas gets blamed for the whole deal and he deserves it. Judas wants the perfume, the perfume sold so he can steal it. But the gospel writers make it really clear. All the disciples said, this is a waste. It wasn't just Judas. Judas wanted the money for him. But the other 12, 11 disciples said, this is a waste. Just perfume. And how many of you know, if you got woman friends, that their perfume costs 60 grand, they got some money, right? You know, I mean, if you have perfume that costs 60 grand, don't tell me you don't have a nice house. If you have that kind of perfume, sell it and get a nice house. Oh, I got five minutes. So, the disciples say, this waste, you know, we could have sold this and we could have helped the poor. We know Jesus loves the poor and we always have these poor people with us and they're always starving and she's wasting this perfume when we could have sold this and helped the poor. Forget Judas for now. I mean, you have pure motives. It's Spock-like male thinking. This is impractical. And Jesus turns to his disciples and he says, this is, are, you, are, you, are you with me? This is, a, this is a woman's liberation movement. He turns to the 12 stooges. <laughs> and he says to them, you're always going to have poor people with you. But you're not always going to have me. And by the way, what this woman did to me today will be spoken of her wherever this gospel is preached. The connotation is what you did won't be, but what she did will be. 
She'll become part of the gospel. The good news. She's part of the good news. What's part of the good news? Women are valued. Women are powerful. Women are embraced by God. Are you with me? That's part of the good news. I love it. Lance, I'm going to go 10 minutes late. Executive decision. In John 8, we have the story of the woman caught in adultery. Who caught this woman in adultery? The Pharisees, and they brought her to what? They didn't just catch her, they brought her to Jesus to what? To test him. To test him. Now, I've said for years, and I'm sure you've thought this, I mean, to commit adultery, it takes a guy and a girl. But they only brought the girl. Okay, so for years I thought, well, that's real sexist. But now I realize why they brought just the girl. They're not just trying to catch Jesus in a dispute over the law. They're trying to catch Jesus in empowering women. They're, tr- they're mad because Jesus is empowering women. That's why they bring the woman and not the man. Because they're oppressing women for generations and Jesus is empowering them. That's why they bring the woman. Because they're trying to see if they can catch Jesus using the law in a way. I mean, their goal is this. Their, their goal is to see if Jesus will give grace to a person who's broken the law. And they're angry that he's empowering women. So they're hoping they can catch him making a heretical statement to protect the woman. Or worse yet, that he'd be forced to stone the woman who he's been empowering for three years. They're hoping, see, if he can force if the Pharisees can force Jesus to stone the woman, then they're going to break this liberation cycle where Jesus is liberating women. It's going to go out through all the land. Jesus okayed the stoning of a woman. <laughs> There's the Samaritan woman at the well. You know the story. I'm sorry. Are you bored? The Samaritan woman. And she's, Jesus is thirsty. And she comes, he comes to the well and there's nobody there. Samaritan woman comes and he looks at her and says, give her, give me something to drink. <laughs> I like, direct. Give me something to drink. And she says, uh, you, you don't have anything to uh, dip with. He said, well, you give it to me. She said, well, you know, you're, you're, how do you, being a Jew... Tell us Samaritans what to do. He said, if you knew who you were talking to. Listen, the problem is you don't know who you're talking to. So you think you're talking to a rabbi. You're actually talking to someone who values you. And if you knew who you were talking to, he would give you a river of living water. And you would never thirst again. You, woman, Samaritan woman. 
you Samaritan woman, if you knew who you were talking to, you would understand that I came here not to get a drink, but to give you one. And she begins to say to him, well, our father Jacob, you're not greater than our father Jacob. Now she makes a connection. First she's like, you're a Jew, we're a Samaritan, why are you talking to me? He says, if you knew who you were talking to, then she goes, our father Jacob, our, yours and mine. She knows how to make a connect. And I love it. And she goes out, of course, and he tells her, you know, you have, he says, bring your husband. I don't have any husbands. He said, that's right, you had five, but the one you're living with now isn't your husband. And she's like, hmm, wow, I, I perceive you're a prophet. And then he proceeds to tell her the most profound teaching on worship given to man in the entire Bible. God is not looking for worship. He's looking for worshipers who worship him in spirit and truth. She gets so rocked that she leaves her water pot behind. Why did she leave her water pot behind? Because he gave her a what? A river where she'll never be thirsty. She runs into the Samaritan city. Samaritans, half-breeds. Not respected. Remember Peter and John, James and John, want to call down fire on the city she's running to. And she tells him, this man told me everything about me. Thank God that the epistles, Paul's epistles weren't written yet that women didn't have to be silent, that they couldn't teach men. <laughs> because all of Samaria would have been lost if she had read those epistles. And I do believe that those epistles are right, but they were relegated contextually to two cities, not universally applied to everyone. If they were universally applied to everyone, the Samaritans learned from a woman. And not only did they learn it says, and they followed her to Jesus, which means she was a leader. Are you with me? <laughs> okay. Jesus was a counterculture radical. He was bringing back, he was bringing women back to their divine design. He was saying to them, you're valuable. You can be taught. You're amazing. Sit at my feet. He protected women. Over and over, he protected women. In the middle of, of a culture that didn't just ignore them. I love this last one. I know I'm very late. Jesus is having dinner at Simon the Pharisee's house. Now, now I don't have to tell you that Pharisees and Jesus don't get along. Right? We know that. As a general statement, Pharisees don't like Jesus. And frankly, Jesus don't much like the Pharisees. He loves them, but he don't much like them. Whitewashed tombs full of dead man's bones. You get the idea. 
So this Pharisee, I, I'm, I'm, you know, I, I understand some of this is subjective, but I mean, the Pharisees having Jesus and 12 disciples over. You know, you ever have a famous person over? I mean, this is, you know, Jesus, this is at the height of Jesus' fame. So, you know, he's trying to make a connect. You know, the, his friends, the other Pharisees don't like him. You know, this is probably a pretty radical move, having Jesus over. And, you know, he, you, know you ever have somebody over your house that, you know, is famous or, like, you know, you really like them and they've never been over? You, you kind of want things to go well. Are you with me? I'm not saying you think, like, don't you kind of clean the house a little bit more than normal? And Do you? Maybe some of you are like, oh, I, don't, I don't care what they think. <laughs> I don't care what they think. I can tell you what they do think. <laughs> I mean, seriously, you have somebody over that's important or famous or, you know, I mean, it's not one of your friends that's over every day. I mean, you clean the house. You want things to be nice. And you make a dinner and you, you want things to go well, right? You're like, oh, whatever you do, don't burn the rice tonight, you know? <laughs> And so, so they have the disciples over in Jesus, and I'm sure there's a lot of tension in the room. I'm just, you know, I just know there had to be, you know, disciples, you know, they don't get along very well, and Jesus and the Pharisees are not, you know, they're kind of arch enemies. And, and so, you know, I'm sure things are not, you know, they're not super smooth. And in comes a woman who's a prostitute. Now, just picture this. You're having dinner with some guests, a bunch of guests, and a, and a call girl comes to your house. Now, now I'm sure the Pharisees probably first like, hey, I don't want, to think Jesus, I don't want Jesus to think this is like she's early. <laughs> you know, so there's probably some of that going on. Like, and, and instead of the woman coming in and quietly sitting in the corner somewhere or making herself you know, inconspicuous, instead she comes and right to Jesus. Whom the Pharisees like now? Now, now, now the Pharisees not concerned anymore about Jesus thinking bad about him. <laughs> now the Pharisees like, what's going on here? <laughs> and she starts to cry, and weep, and take this alabaster vial again. Three different times, women break into rooms and pour alabaster vials over Jesus. Do you know that? And she breaks this alabaster vial over, and she starts weeping, and she's wiping his, his feet with her tears and, and with her hair. And then the Pharisee says to himself, to himself, not to anyone else, but Jesus can read minds. And he says to himself, if this guy was a prophet, he'd know this woman's a prostitute. And Jesus says to Simon, Simon, look at this woman. Now, now, he isn't saying like, hey, Simon, listen, I want you to pay attention. No, you have to understand the culture. Simon, Pharisee, they don't look at women. They especially don't look at prostitutes. <laughs> He's not just saying, look over here. He's saying, Simon, look, have some value for this woman. I want, look at, Simon, I want you to look over. Simon, look at me. Look at this woman. I want you to value this woman is what he's saying. And then he turns to the woman, and turning to the woman, he says to Simon, I have something to say to you. Simon, I'm looking at her, but I'm talking to you. You get this? I have something to say to you. To you. I have something to say to you. Because I've told you, look at this woman. I have something to say to you. While you're looking at this woman, I have something to say to you. Simon, when I came in here, you gave me no kisses. You didn't give me no kisses. But 
she hasn't stopped kissing me since I got here. That's Simon's problem. Simon doesn't like what she's doing. Jesus says, what you hate, I love. And Simon, when I came in here, you did not anoint my head with oil. She's anointed my head with perfume. And Simon, when I came in here, you did not wash my feet, which was customary. You didn't even wash my feet. You guys are all about custom, you know, wash hands, wash feet. Jesus' disciples didn't wash their hands before they, you didn't even wash my feet. You'd think I forgot. But when this woman came in here, she washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. Listen, he's just not talking about, do you understand the gospel writers have lots of stuff to write about? John said, if all the miracles that Jesus did were written down, the, the, the books, the world himself could not contain the books. Do you understand that when they write about women, 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 and three writers record the story? Do you understand when they're writing about women, 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 over and over again, three women at the tomb, I mean, at the cross, two women at the tomb. Only two people went to the funeral, and they were both women. When the Bible makes mention of women, 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 you don't understand. This is a counterculture statement. Women weren't included in anything. And the main point the gospel writers are making is women were valued. Women were protected. Simon, do you see this woman? And I'm asking you, do you see the woman? And the second question I got to ask you is this. Where were the world, 11 world changers when Jesus rose from the dead? Because only two women went to the tomb. Remember, Jesus had been telling them for six months, I'm going to die, but I'm going to rise again. They're going to tear down this temple, but it's going to be raised up in three days. Remember that? He'd been telling all his disciples that. But only two people go to the tomb. And only one sees the risen Christ. And when Jesus tells them, and it's, it's a, a former demonized prostitute who brings the first word of the Lord. And if you don't think men should listen to women or be taught by women, then the disciples still be trying to figure out where Jesus was. And Jesus says to Mary Magdalene, the former prostitute, seven demons cast out, go tell my disciples, I'm alive, I am not dead. And get this, they go tell the 11 disciples, right? One's already dead. They go tell 11 disciples that Jesus rose from the dead, like he's been telling them for six months. And what's their response? Only two of them even went to check. The rest of them said they didn't believe it. Two women believed. They went to the tomb to check. One met Jesus. Eleven world changers didn't believe it after he rose. And Jesus says to Thomas, Blessed are those who haven't seen but believe. 
was a woman who was the first evangelist. It was the woman who taught the most powerful, profound truth before a man ever thought about it. It was a woman who taught on the resurrection before anybody even knew about it. And it was a woman who was taught the resurrection before a man ever knew there was one. It was a woman. And the gospel writers mentioned women, 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 women. And if you understood the culture that they wrote their gospels in, you would understand the main point is there's black people in the church and it's 50, 1950. And you would understand that when he said there was 5,000 men, well, let me tell you something special though. There was women. There was children. You would get that the gospel, a big piece of the good news, is not just that he's alive, but that women are powerful. Stand up, please. Would you put your hand on the shoulder of a woman next to you? <laughs> Lord, we just commission your most beautiful creation into her divine destiny right now in the name of Jesus. Lord, we release them. We release them into their divine destiny as women of God, as, as people who are carrying out the feminine nature of God. Lord, we just release them to be powerful agents of change, to teach, to, 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 in, to do miracles, to lead. God, we just, we just pray that right now. And Lord, we break the power of oppression over generations of, of womanhood. Lord, we break the power of oppression off women. And Lord, we thank you that you, when you died on the cross, you broke the curse and your husband shall rule you. Lord, thank you that you've made us co-reigners, co-laborers, that women have every bit as much Holy Spirit as a man. Father, we thank you. We thank you for their compassion. We thank you for the, the, the side of life that you've commissioned them to lead. And may we as men follow in, the, in those in the feminine side of life. May we learn the other side of God in this new era of Esther's who would emerge. And may we be like Mordecai. May we be like may men and our culture. May we shift cultures and may we be the Mordecai of our culture. May we, say, may we be saying to our women, listen, the king loves you. You don't have to worry. He'll, he's gonna extend the scepter to you. Go for it, Esther. You're a star. Thank you, Lord. We just bless women in Jesus' name.